This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 16. Episode 24. This is Writing Excuses. World building for games. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm James. I'm Dan. I'm Cassandra. And I'm Howard. And we are so excited to be talking about world building. This is uh, something that we all do in our normal kind of fiction, novel, short story writing. Uh, But how is it different for games? Cass, what do we need to know? It's actually very similar, I think, in that your number one goal with world building in games, like in novels and prose, is to inspire curiosity. You want to create a place that people want to keep coming back to, not necessarily to stay, because some of these places can be absolutely terrible, but to explore, to wonder about, to invent stories over. And I think this is especially true for tabletop role-playing games, isn't it, James? Yeah, because in tabletop, you're often giving people the tools to tell stories rather than telling them a story. So the setting that you give them in uh, something like Pathfinder or Dungeons & Dragons or whatever is really a springboard for people to tell their own stories. Um, And one of the things I love as a writer for games like that is I'll have somebody come up to me at a convention and be like, oh, that lost city you wrote about, you know, we've been playing a game there for a year and let me tell you all about it. And they'll get to the end of their story. And I'm thinking, I wrote two sentences about that city. <laughs> like I, they put all that detail was them imagining it. And they think I'm a genius because they created all this stuff. <laughs> so you're really getting the audience to do your work for you. Um, which is why one of my favorite things when doing game design is what I think of as the power of illusion with an A, um, where I will just like drop interesting sounding details in there and not fully explain them and let them let the audience sort of wonder about it or decide for themselves what that could be. That's fodder for them to tell their own stories the same way as in like a video game. Maybe you show some cool art off the edge of the map in the background. Yeah, this is oh. this is actually very similar to uh, to the way puppetry works. And uh, hey, we've gotten six episodes in without me bringing up puppetry even once <laughs> until now. Um, but the what you want to do is you want to create certain specific aspects of the character, and then trust that the audience is going to fill in the rest. Like, you know, we've all seen uh, Miss Piggy bat her eyes at Kermit the Frog, and she does not have working eyelashes. You, the 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 viewer puts that into your head in, in, you know, you, you build that mechanic from the world. That's- in the humor classes that I teach, um, I, I use a theater principle called noises off, which is that, uh, you know, the pie fight you imagine is way more interesting than the pie fight I can draw. And James, what you said here about illusion, uh, dropping a reference for something and getting you, the player, you, the reader, to imagine whatever that was, you know, what, whatever it is, that's incredibly useful because I didn't have to draw it. I didn't have to build it. You did all the heavy lifting. 
Um, yeah. I think one really good example of that, if you want something to research, is the Bloodborne game from From Software. And one of the things that I remember most distinctly about it was there was this whole journey to a boss. And you're kind of going up this completely red river. There are just mountains of corpses everywhere. There's no explanation. There's no one giving you exposition. And at one point, you see a gate. And this guy who has been completely skinned, he's just red muscle and tissue. He's holding onto the bars of that gate and just very gently banging his head against the door. And again, there is no explanation. It never comes up again in the rest of the game. But I remember just standing there going, oh, my God, what happened here? And my brain just went wild on that. I love that. Uh, I, I do want to, to give the counterpoint that as absolutely correct as all of this is, sometimes you do need to provide a lot of those details and fill in a lot of that illusion, um, which is kind of the, the big main job of world building. Actually, I would, uh, <laughs> we're going to turn this into a debate show. Um, I think that that's true, but you always need to ask more questions than you answer. You always mm-hmm. want to make sure that if you give somebody the answer to a big mystery, you better make sure that you asked another one because the answers are rarely as satisfying as the questions in terms of keeping somebody up at night thinking about stuff, um, especially in tabletop, which is why, you know, when I'm writing for a tabletop book, um, I'm always thinking about adventure hooks. I'm trying to think, you know, every paragraph, I want to be putting in a detail or a question that could lead a game master to go, oh, I can write a campaign about that. You know, I'm trying Mm -hmm. to give people tools that they can use to tell their own stories. So, you know, if you give somebody an in, you know, you you can have whatever details you want, but make sure that there's something there they can work with. Um, cause that's what they're paying you for. So if, even if all you need for your story is an ordinary basic tavern, make the tavern keeper have a criminal past so that at any moment, uh, she's worried her old colleagues could find her and kick in the door. You know, that's dropping something in that a game master doesn't have to use, but they could use to start a game. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I didn't mean to imply that we shouldn't be doing that. And I, Phrasing it the way you did, ask more questions than you answer, I think is a really good way to put it. Um, But as a game master, when I come to a supplement, if it's putting all the work on me, well, then I didn't need to buy that supplement because I'm the one doing all the work anyway. And so I really like it when a game offers me enough tools to work with rather than being so free form that there's nothing there. Um, I think that's one thing that is possibly like definitely necessary on the topic of world building. You can go as light as you want. You can be detailed depending on the property, but narrative resonance, I feel, is vital. You should build your motifs and your themes into everything you do, including the mechanics themselves. Like every component of the game should carry its weight doing double duty where possible. And I think the Persona series is weirdly a really good example of that. They have something called the social link mechanics, which makes use of the tarot arcana and builds on the idea that each of the cards have different meanings. And each of these cards are associated with an NPC you can 
befriend or romance or whatever. And they're fascinating because mechanically, the social links are just a way of leveling up the personas that you get in the game. And even if you're not necessarily into the idea of doing the side quest, you're going to move towards them because you want to discover more, because you want to interrogate your understanding. Um, and there is this one character that I think of that as a really good example of this, uh, Kanji Tasumi in the Persona 4 game. His arcana is the emperor. And he begins as this really stereotypically rude, tuggish guy who yells at everything, who is very contrary. But he's also hiding the fact that he's an absolute sweetheart on the inside. And he is trying to compensate for the knowledge that he isn't a typical guy's guy by over-exaggerating those traits. His journey becomes confronting his fears and that kind of ties to the emperor, that sense of patriarchy and control. And what happens when you have too much of it holding on to you? And even if you're vaguely wandering through this game, you know it's related to the tarots and you know it's related to the emperor. So you sort of know what you should be doing. And that is because of narrative resonance. And we should pause there for the game of the week, which is Dan with the Dune RPG. Yeah, Dune is my favorite book of all time. And uh, it just got a brand new RPG. Uh, by the time this airs, it will be just a, a month old, maybe. It's from Modiphius. It uses their 2D20 system, which is the same basic game system uh, that we use on uh, Typecast for Star Trek Horizon. But what they've done here that ties into the world building is Dune is a, is a, has a really wide range of power sets. And uh, you've got, you know, very weak, physically weak characters set up against characters with incredible magic powers versus characters who have incredible technology, who can see the future, who can do all these things. How could you possibly balance all of that world building together? So the game is still fun. And what they've done is a really brilliant mechanic where your motivations and your drives as a person directly affect how good you are at doing something. And so it's less about the powers that you have and more about why you're doing the things that you're doing. It's a really clever twist on the system and uh, they do a really good job with it. So the Dune RPG from Modiphius. All right. So with all these things we've been talking about with, uh, you know, dropping in, asking questions, dropping in illusions and adventure hooks and stuff. Um, this is something that gives, uh, gives Game Masters something to build on, but it also gives you job security. If you can get the audience excited about something, then you can come back later and continue to write more about it. This uh, explanation and expansion way of working, you know, forcing myself to justify and explore the random details that I've dropped before is something that I really enjoy. And a lot of my best work has come out of, you know, I drop a couple of lines. Um, you know, early on in my career, I wrote about a city called Karamaga and just like threw in a line about like, oh yeah, and it's full of worm folk and bloat majors and sweet talkers who sew their own lips shut so that uh, because they're not worthy of speaking the name of God, you know, like I just sort of dropped these details in and a bunch of fans went, wait, whoa, what? Like, I want to know more about that. And that led to, you know, setting books and adventures and novels 
And uh, that's really my favorite way to work is to just kind of throw out random ideas and test the waters. Um, but I want to know, how do you all come up with interesting setting ideas, setting details specifically? At this point, I've stopped coming up with them. I, I have, the well is too deep. It's, I just reach in and grab something that I thought of 15 years ago and cue it up. I, I don't have time to, I don't have time for new ideas. I'm going to die before (laughs) 90% of these hit the page. So wasting time thinking of new ones is awful. So with that helpful piece of advice. um, (laughs) Kill Howard and take uh, his ideas. Yes. Um, uh, some of the things that I'll do is uh, inverting things um, or or pairing things that are unexpected. Um, so a lot of times uh, this this will be um, like I'll, I'll take I'll take a single starting point. Um, like milliner assassin was something that we used in an earlier uh, season, and I'm like these two words do not go together. Um, and then chasing the logical causal chains out from that point. And so I, I think about, you know, like, why do we have a milliner assassin? Uh, how? Uh, so for me, it's why, how, and with what effect? And and chasing those is the logical causal chains. The how is kind of how it exists in that moment. And the with what effect are the ripple effects to the future and kind of to the sides. So that's, that's one of the ways that I will come up with interesting world building details. And a lot of times, I mean, it really is that I will just fart words onto a page and be like, well, that looks interesting and then carry on. <laughs> I love that. I love the causal chain idea. Um, for Planet Mercenary, one of the worlds has too many metals in it. And I conjured up uh, genetically engineered pigs whose metabolisms push the metals out of the meat so they are actually safe to make bacon from. And when we came up with an adventure in which someone is stealing the pigs, uh, my daughter asked me, where do they push the metal? I said, well, probably all the way out to the edges of their skin. And she said, so they glitter? And I realized, oh my gosh, not only do they glitter, they shed glitter. And if you've stolen the pigs you are now trying to steal animals that shed glitter <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> Why would it you steal that? A, <laughs> it's now a game mechanic. And yeah, and it grows out of the, the idea of causality. You had a cool idea, make that idea causal for something interesting. I feel like causality is definitely a very good way of developing worlds of it. All of this sounds very much like how I do it. I tend to start with the idea of a primary food source in a world and build from there. Like, why hmm. is it this way? Is it a migratory, let's say, protein? If so, do people, are people largely nomadic? Do people settle down? What kind of world would have, I don't know, flying pigs wandering around? What kind of cities would come true of it? And what kind of economies, how do you build a luxury item of it? What would pair with bacon on an alien landscape? And then I start building the flora and fauna and cultures just around that single idea to begin with. I also really like food. I don't know if that's obvious. 
<laughs> I I also love approaching things from that evolutionary standpoint of always asking yourself why things are the way they are, and also what are the evolutionary pressures and where are they pushing things. Um, and I think it's important when you're doing all of this stuff. Like it can be very big picture, but focus on the world building your players will actually interact with. You know. Yes. Uh, and also, it's okay to do it patchwork. It's actually in some ways better. You don't have to just sit down and write the whole setting in a day. And if you try to, you're probably going to end up spreading your ideas a little too thin. Um, and so by you know zooming in and saying, well, I'm going to develop this city today, and then you know next week I'm going to develop this uh, nation over here that's different, um, you'll have a different flavor just because you're different from day to day. You've taken in different stuff. Yeah, I was going to say uh, the same thing about uh, focusing on the world-building aspects that players will interact with. Um, <clears throat> I had to, uh, recently for a, a science fiction RPG that I was writing in a scenario for, they really, for some reason, wanted it to have a diner. It's kind of a noir-style adventure, and they're like, well, we need to meet the cop in a diner. And so if I was going to put a diner into this science fiction world, I wanted to make sure that it had an appropriate science fictional sense of wonder to it, despite just being a diner. And uh, this particular world had, you know, brain, everyone has a computer in their brain and you can download memories. And so I thought, well, obviously what that means then is the chef can make absolutely anything because he's going to just be able to download your grandma's recipe and then reproduce it for you because he can do the memories that way, which then spun out, well, he needs access to an incredible amount of ingredients if he can make anything that a customer asks for. And that started creating all these things. And then we had to think, well, how are the players going to interact with this? Not just they can get their favorite food, but are they going to be able to mess with the little drones that can deliver these ingredients? Are they going to be able to uh, you know, request specific different things? And keeping the players at the forefront of the world building changed how that whole scene played out. Uh, I think we're slowly running. Well, we're very quickly running out of time. <laughs> One thing I want to throw in there is when we're building worlds, it's important, I think, to consider our own personal biases. A very large budget game that I will not name because I do not want its fans to go after me is absolutely brilliant. It is a wonderful thing. Great quest. It's also been rightly lambasted for only having white people, entirely white casts. And the developers push back going like, well, this is our country. It is, the ethnic majority is X. And everyone else was like, no, historically speaking, this is not true. And I understand everyone's arguments here, weirdly enough. If you do not think about things, you just expect your norm to be other people's norm. And that can be incredibly alienating. So when you world build, think about your own privileges and biases and how it might intersect with your players' needs. And this is true for pros as well. You've heard us talk about I, this. I, I've shared this before on Writing Excuses. Uh, my son, uh, adult son, he's autistic. We were watching Elementary and uh, Sherlock is interacting with an autistic woman. And my son, who rarely is interested in what I'm watching, stood behind the couch and watched that and said, they're both like me. 
And I almost wept because that is the only time I've heard him say that. Everything that we build, everything that we build can easily be built to have room for people to have that experience where they can look at a character, an NPC, a whatever, and say, they're like me. I don't think we're going to get a more powerful point to go out on. Uh, so we should probably wrap it there. Um, and uh, your homework for this week is to take a story or a game that you've written and drop in several casual allusions to names that you've just made up. So places, people, objects. Don't try to figure out what they are. Just make the names as cool sounding as you can. So you throw in, you know, Soul Trees and the Babbling Throne and Kobashar the Unmoored. And just write those in there and then come back a week later and write a page of background on each of those names to sort of justify what it is and explain why it makes sense. Cool. That sounds great. This is Writing Excuses. You are out of excuses. Now go write. This has been Writing Excuses. Your hosts for this episode were Cassandra Kaw, Mary Robinette Kowal, James L. Sutter, Howard Taylor, and Dan Wells. The episode was engineered by Marshall Carr Jr., mastered by Alex Jackson, and brought to you by our supporters at patreon.com slash writing excuses. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one -on -one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.